Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Resilient Leadership Learning from Crisis podcast. I'm Seth Schultz, the Executive Director of the Resilience Shift. After taking a midterm break, Peter Willis and I are back to share with you some insights on leadership during a crisis from our latest round of interviews conducted with the same group of 12 senior decision makers in city government and large global organizations who are navigating their organization's response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Welcome back, Peter. We're, uh, we're past the midterm review and, and back to our weekly roundups. Isn't that good? Nice to see you and hear you, Seth. I'm interested to hear how our participants have done with a, a week or two off from their conversations with you and what's emerged in the meantime. It's interesting that the issue of trust has surfaced yet again. We had it in round two, I think it was. It came up around the question of, do our staff trust us around reopening offices and businesses and so on? And it surfaced again in various ways, but we touch on that in the weekly blog. So I'm going to skip over that. And I suspect also that trust is going to reemerge later because I think it's a fundamental question around leadership in a crisis. But I want to talk about how the social protests, the, the racism protests that have been going on in the US and around the world have started to impact on some of these companies and the relationship with the COVID crisis. And then talk about there's more of the personal toll that this whole thing has taken on these individuals and the people that they lead. And then to end, looking at a rather promising few insights into this possibility of learning out of this institutional learning. Yeah, which I think is it would be a nice way for us to end. How does that sound to you? Sounds like there's a lot of stuff to cover. And, and I'm not surprised about some of the challenges around inequity inequality, racism popping up, especially given, you know, where I'm sitting in the world in the US. Um, that's been all consuming for the last week or so. So yeah, not not surprised, but really interested to hear how that's playing out, particularly as this has kind of erupted here in the US. And, and now fascinating to hear how everybody else, the rest of the world is perceiving this and or dealing with this on their own turf. So over to you, where, where should we start? Let's go into this. I, I think of this as rolled into the, the racism and the, the riots and the protests is, to me, an aspect of the widening of this crisis. Because if you think back a few weeks, it was just COVID-19, COVID-19, nothing much else seemed to be on anybody's radar screen. But now, uh, I think it might have been a week or two ago, we talked about Tom Lewis at WSP needing to, to deal with the fact that it's hurricane season and hurricanes don't wait for us to get the pandemic out of the way. So that added a layer of complexity into his business and, and uh, one or two others as well. And now we've got this, this momentous social upheaval around the murder of George Floyd. Both Barbara Hampton at Siemens USA and Tom Lewis at WSP have spoken to me about them as an organization realizing they really need to speak to their people about so how is this organization of yours thinking and feeling about how are we going to respond to this? They're both incredibly encouraged by the way, not only are there, in the US, I believe it's called sort of diversity and inclusion is the standard term for a department within your organization that deals with expanding racial and gender inclusivity in your workforce, et cetera. And those departments have really stepped up. And that you would sort of expect, because this would be a moment they would feel they, they had to. But I was very 
interested in two specifics. One was that in WSP, Tom Lewis is sort of ultimate boss, the CEO of WSP globally, who's based in Canada. He put together a, a short video, which Tom sent me, and I thought it was actually really interesting because essentially he had himself and his diversity and inclusion executive on this little video talking to the staff. And they were saying, I'm actually going to quote him here. He ends by saying, let's design the future together. And I remember this is an engineering consultancy, big, hefty bridges, roads, infrastructure. And he says, let's design the future together, not just in terms of infrastructure, but in terms of culture. Now, to me, that's really stepping forward into new territory. So I found that really encouraging that here's a consultancy thinking about social infrastructure, otherwise known as culture, and its role in supporting transformative work in that area. That is pretty fascinating. Yeah. I mean, and, and absolutely relevant. I mean, the infrastructure underpins society and allows us to enjoy the freedoms of mobility, of information, of knowledge exchange. So, I mean, it's absolutely right that that kind of messaging is coming out, but I, I take your point. It's not, it is a little unusual. You might see this from a company like Nike or Coca-Cola, which has more of that kind of visibility and brand consumption, but for a big global engineering company, quite, quite remarkable. Yes. Um, and then Barbara at Siemens, where what I found interesting there was that, yes, they're doing similarly some very good communications work with their staff and so on. But she said, look, of course, we had done this tremendous amount of work redesigning how we were going to approach the coronavirus. And we, you might recall, we talked about this a while back. Early on, they set up a, she set up a sort of transversal networked leadership team that was just going to focus on the coronavirus and how the company was going to deal with it. And they're now in the process of sort of stepping that down because they've absorbed the crisis management stuff into their regular management systems. So the crisis is sort of the heat has been taken up. But along comes this huge civil unrest. In their country, yeah. Civil unrest. And so they've cranked it up again immediately. And she says there's a, there's a recognition in the organization. Ah, oh, we've now got a tool for handling disturbance in the environment. And she says it's working really well. They've got a different networked leadership team that have taken this on and working out what are the implications for Siemens. Number one. Same as with the coronavirus, are our people safe? Is it safe for them to come to work, etc.? So they're checking that. And then second thing on her list is how is our business affected? But the third one was the coronavirus. And for this is what do we bring to the table? What does Siemens, what can Siemens do that could make a difference in this crisis? And they're starting to brainstorm some really interesting ideas there. And I'm waiting to hear from her what they decide they're going to put their energy into. To me, this is a corporation that has developed a responsive sort of nervous system to crisis. And the next time a crisis comes along, they are in an excellent position to organize internally, to be effective and helpful externally. I love the point that you're making about the kind of the responsive nervous system and how new electrical brainwaves are stimulated is by those the neural pathways. And, and once they're established, it's easier to make that connection. So I love that analogy, but also using a human anatomy analogy, it's, it's not just the neural networks, it's also 
previously to what we discussed, it's exercising that muscle because you need to be able to make the connections, but you also need to then act. And it is fascinating how COVID has created this internal mechanism of resilience, both in, in terms of the connections and the ability in terms of the muscle to then act and put it into motion really quickly. I think it's fascinating. And again, an insight and learning about what all this means. How do we understand resilience? How are we supposed to embody and achieve resilience? And in effect, what it really is, is it's more of a process than necessarily an outcome. And it's a continual journey. And I, I think it's interesting that we're seeing this journey continue to evolve, but the process, you know, the point is, is the journey. And as a result, you know, you're able to uh, achieve things in, in different ways. I, one, of, one of my favorite quotes, and I don't know who it's, it's from, it's, um, you don't have to be great to start, but you have to start to be great. And a lot of people always ask me, well, how do I be resilient? You just have to start. You've got to get into the game. You've got to start thinking about this and out good things will come. You've got to kind of get out of the starting blocks. Interesting to hear that that's kind of bubbling up your conversations with some of the, our corporate uh, participants. Yes. And I would say that, again, using your body metaphor, that it's like an athlete trains and trains and maintains his or her body in a state where they can perform when, whenever they need to. And that in itself is an end almost, is to be in a condition where you can perform whatever your particular sport or activity is. It's not uh, an end because that implies that you coast afterward or you just sort of, you lower your effort. Which isn't the goal. Yeah. No. I, I look forward to another conversation. I know we were talking about this on, on email about having a conversation around resilience. Yeah. And well, and it's also just fascinating. Um, I hate to keep using the words fascinating and interesting, but I mean, that's what, I mean, that's what all this is, is just revealing again, the kind of this pandemic stripping back these underlying conditions. And, and in this case of systemic racism that still exists in the U S and it's, it's been there, it hasn't not been there, but there weren't the right sets of conditions. There, there weren't the right number of people at home, already concerned about lost jobs, already seeing that the minority communities in the U.S. were the ones that were getting COVID more and or the death rates are higher, even though they were the lower number of populations in particular urban areas. All of this is indicative and uh, pointing to this broader issue. And it's now kind of bubbled up and kind of emerged. But it, it is amazing, again, going back to resilience and individual responses, the, res the response across the country has been unbelievable. I mean, we're saying we haven't seen a civil rights movement like this since the assassination of Martin Luther King in 1968. And it's, I can tell you just from living here, that it's at all levels. It's not just companies. It's not just cities. I got a letter from my kid's school board uh, yesterday addressing this. It's been addressed in town halls and in meetings and in discussions with almost every single person in my family that I've talked to in the last two weeks. It's really quite remarkable what's happening. Peter, I don't, this is not, I don't think this is a blip. No, I suspect that one of the ways this is connected to the coronavirus, you've just outlined the one, which is that there was a, a real imbalance in the suffering and mortality amongst African-Americans. The other, I think, is that during the virus, there's been this um, opening up of the, the heart um, and the, the connection, the sense of we, because we are all in this together, not just around the States, but globally, we all knew that everybody was in this together. And we have never had a moment like that before. 
And it isn't surprising then that when those who were most hurt and most angry close to the George Floyd murder took to the streets so passionately that it's rippled out and it's caught that same sense of connected we-ness that I think was surfaced by the pandemic. That's how I read it. I mean, this is where we're, we've strayed a little from the evidence of what I'm getting in the, in the interviews. Where I actually wanted to go is because I had a conversation earlier today with Elaine Roberts at LR Group in the UK. And she's been very interested in the way the corporate world is shifting. And she was part of this large, a letter signed by a large number of senior corporate executives in the UK to Boris Johnson, the prime minister, asking him, I'm waiting to see, she said, you'd send me a copy of the letter, but and she's saying, this is very, very unusual. Normally, corporates are very cautious about publicly approaching political leadership. And her sense and my sense, I don't know what you're picking up over in the States, is that the corporates have come out well. Big global corporates have come out well, by and large, from this coronavirus because they have to, because they think globally and all their staff are affected, all their supply chains are affected. Whereas nation states have been responding very nationally. And as you know, there's been no big sort of UN, no global collective movement. Corporates have had to think of it in a global sense. And we were both agreeing that we think this is going to be an irrevocable step along a journey for corporate world out into the into society in the sense that they are they're now part of this. They are they're not just contributing philanthropic money, CSI, we're in this together. And we've actually got a lot of resources and skills and you can start to count on us. I mean, I firmly believe that's the case. You know, I've been working with big global organizations in the private sector for close to two decades and and particularly the last decade around um, crowding in the global corporate community in terms of helping make global policy changes around climate change, resilience. So they're not unfamiliar with this. And the conversations that I've been having for nigh on a decade with these organizations is there's a big transition coming, whether it's through the world agreeing to a carbon tax or a cap and trade on carbon and or the fourth industrial revolution. They, they know there's a massive shift. And what these big global corporations are doing, because they are, have a global footprint and they play such a large role in the global economy, they're very attuned to these things. But of course, at the end of the day, they need to, they're beholden to their shareholders and they need to protect the financial proclivity and fluidity of their organization and, and on behalf of their shareholders. So it's a, not to them, it's no longer a conversation of if this is going to happen, it's when. And they need to make the switch at a point where it'll be the least painful for them financially. And the conversations that I'm having now around the world with companies is there's a term that's being kind of batted around behind closed doors, and they're calling it the great reset, which is fascinating. Because if you think about it, big companies, they have, you know, they have annual layoffs and hirings, and they have restructures and new focuses and new investments. This is a regular thing that companies do. You know, something like COVID comes along, which is really scary and shocks you. And, you know, you're getting pushed and forced off of your plan and off of your strategy, and you have to react. 
you know, once you start, which we're seeing now, I think, once you start level setting with where you're at and, and how well you, you are or you're not, you start then looking back to the future. And what these companies are seeing is that this is, an, this is a massive reset in terms of restructuring organizations to be more nimble and flexible and resilient moving forward. But also, they've all been very concerned for a long time about the uncertainty ahead that is uh, impacting them around an uncertain future because of climate change, because of markets, because of insurance, uh, because of the energy sector and the shifts and the changes there. And I, I think as a result, they've been figuring, but the, you know, the, there aren't mechanisms and products. Insurance products don't exist for this. There's not the right incentives for paying more upfront capital costs for investing in things like more sophisticated IT or projects that require less operation and maintenance over the long haul, but more capital cash upfront. This is just not the way the world is set up right now, uh, but they know that needs to change. And now they're looking at this all of a sudden, they're all at the same time, deeply understanding the fragility of the supply chains, of how they get their workers to and from work, where they get their products from, but in terms of to, you know, to the, the materials they need to make their products or to deliver their products, and then how they get them to the end consumer. And if any of that falls apart, they don't have a business. Uh, and they're all seeing in this at a deeper level than ever before in my conversations with them over the last 20 years. So I think there's a massive shift coming, Peter, that is going, that is going to be led by the private sector because they now deeply understand the fragility of their own existence as a company based on the fragility of the underlying infrastructure and the interconnected nature of, of society. And they're not going to wait for a government or for anybody else to figure that out. They're going to do it themselves. And you're going to see these things that you're talking about from Elaine Roberts, from LRG, or otherwise re companies are getting together and saying to national governments, hey, this is the deal. This is what we need to do. They're going to restructure their, their staff and repivot their positions. They're going to start investing in this in, in ways that we've not yet seen. And I, I hold great hope for, for this, and, and particularly because some of these problems need to be solved by the business community, and they need to be on the front foot of this, not the back foot. So Peter, pivoting a little bit from kind of the global corporate response and, and this larger shift that's underfoot um, and the, the, the increasing robustness or healthiness of, of the response and, and insight that organizations have gained from dealing with COVID, um, what's, what's the, going back to the individual, um, is there any additional, you know, and I want to kind of keep harping on this, but we were dealing with COVID. Now we've got civil unrest and more upheaval and more uncertainty uh, and more stress on the individuals. These people I'm talking to have been at it uh, kind of full time for three months now. And it's not surprising that they're, uh, I mean, Steve Hammer in the World Bank is saying that the people he's talking to, both his friends outside the bank and his colleagues inside the bank, he uses the word, they've reached burnout stage. And he mentions this very plausible point that, you know, they're coming into, in the Northern Hemisphere, you're coming to your summer holidays and people would normally be getting ready to go to summer holidays. And many of his friends aren't sure that they're going to get a summer holiday, or if they are, it's going to be a very strange version of what they're used to. And Piero in Milan, the chief resilience officer there, he told me last week that he had taken three days to go to the lake. I'm not sure which lake, but there is probably a big lake next to Milan. My apologies for my ignorance there. 
he said it was the first time that he'd actually been able to reflect on what had happened in the last few months. And he had this expression, which he said, it's like downhill skiing. You go for three months without stopping. And actually he said, that's not good because I found it so useful to reflect in those three days at the lake on what I'd learned, what had worked well, what hadn't worked well, and so on. He said, I should have been doing that earlier. But in the downhill, you know, there are no breaks. You just go. And on the other flip side of that, he talked about starting to collect from the different departments around the city data on what had you done during the crisis. So he's already sensing that there's going to be a, an easing up over the next two, three months. And he wants to initiate a process, stop departments, get them together in some way, and he's thinking September, October, to say, so what did we do? How did we do? And we were talking about this, and and his sense is that this is not just um, a forensic audit. In fact, it's not at all a forensic audit. He says it's partly, he sees it as a way to to recognize the humanity of the credible contribution and exhaustion that his people have been through, all these departments, and to recognize that we actually did some amazing stuff and there are some things that if we don't talk about it, they will be lost and we could have done some things differently and it's okay to talk about it and so on. I thought this was such a, a mature and creative way to come out of a grueling crisis like this. So I'm sure we'll talk some more about that as he starts to sort of co-design that process. But interesting, here's a little piece of extraordinary information. He talked with the internal audit department of Milan City Administration, and he said that, look, I'm wanting to put together a sort of timeline so we understand exactly what happened when. And they said, oh, well, we can help because we have to log every single piece of legislation and regulation that comes from national, state, or from our own council. And we have to sort of keep it in, a, in order. So we can tell you, <laughs> they went and counted, and they, he said there were over 350 separate ordinances since the beginning of the pandemic. That is fascinating. That the city had to comply with. Now, you think of the, the implications of that for the sheer bureaucratic workload. The other thing that is really intriguing in that is oftentimes is in my work in the city space, you know, I think cities get a bad rap for being bureaucratic and being siloed and that, you know, smart people go there to die, right? This is this kind of broader kind of notion. And if the innovation happens in the private sector and my personal experience after 10 years of working deeply with cities around the world is that they're one of the most innovative places on the planet. And I just don't think that people understand the level of innovation that goes on in city administrations on how to continually evolve, adapt, deal with what you have, and also deal with the constraints that you have in terms of your capacity and resources. And, and they, they say um, necessity is the mother of all innovation. And it couldn't be more true for cities who are oftentimes strapped with capacity, but they've still got to figure things out. And I think the example you just gave is wonderful to kind of highlight and balance this notion that innovation is only happening in companies and they're leading an unbelievable, unprecedented rate of innovation and action is occurring in cities all the time. Yeah, I thought that was extraordinary. 
and uh, and that that idea just to to register because I, I just think it's going to be so important coming out of this crisis that uh, Elaine at LR Group also said she's angling within her executive committee for what she calls an appreciative inquiry as they come out, which in her words is sort of saying, do you remember to say to themselves, do you remember how we did X or Y during the crisis, which we would never have thought we could? So how do we capture and retain that super ability that we discovered we had in all kinds of areas after the sort of ferocious urgency of the crisis has passed. I mean, what, what we didn't talk about, but you and I would, would know, is that this crisis may pass, but then life is only going to be crisis. Yeah, exactly. And I think the point you made about Milan, too, you know, and the exercise of the internal auditing departments is fascinating of trying to, one, it, pull out and extract the lessons that you learned, two, but give that, that space for people to talk positively or negatively about what they could or couldn't achieve which is a massive learning opportunity, but then collectively both of those types of processes do, which I think you've mentioned from uh, in the past around Barbara and Siemens and others is this new commonly created, commonly owned sense of culture moving forward because you've created you this moment and pulled together in profoundly different ways in different constructs than you had previously. And to keep that, don't lose that. But if you don't consciously take the time as you're saying, some of our participants are attempting to do, you you will lose that. So really, yeah, a major point, I think, to focus on. Yes. So what you're saying, Seth, about the this sort of subterranean shift in corporate thinking and even values that you, you sense is imminent reminds me of a couple of points that were raised, one by Mahesh in Pune, the chief resilience officer there, who, when I was asking him about his sense of how the corporate, the businesses in Pune had responded and what's their relationship with government. He was incredibly optimistic. And I said, I mean, he was using words like they've developed a better understanding of each other's needs, they've collaborated, and they've, they've developed a sympathy for each other's processes and challenges and opportunities. And, and I thought that was really very promising assessment of how businesses in a city might come out of this in relation to the city administration. And again, this is one to watch. I found that very, very hopeful. And it made sense also from my experience of the corporations in Cape Town during the excruciating drought here, because they really stepped up and they got into conversations with the, the city administration, which they would never have had, and vice versa. The city administration just didn't know their business leaders. That is really hopeful to hear because so so often these these types of organizations, government and companies are kind of pitted against each other and in a, in a continual dance. And there's nothing more unifying than a common cause. Yet it is really profound what you're saying from Mahesh in terms of understanding, awareness, sympathy. I mean, that is that is quite a hopeful outcome of all of this, that we can have some further alignment in, in terms of impact and implementation between government and corporations moving forward. I'm sufficiently realistic to know that there will be plenty of people in these businesses and in the corresponding city governments who will get back to normal and will forget and will sort of retreat to their little camps. But I firmly believe that when you've had this kind of an experience, it will leave a residue and it might have left some relationships. That's really the, the glue that makes the difference, I think. 
And then, yeah, the, this last thought I had was to share with you this, uh, what Anne Rosenberg from SAP was saying, because she's very, obviously SAP is very focused on technology and its uses in the world. And she makes this point that we've moved into an era just in the last few years where technology, it, we, we kind of realize that technology can do anything you ask of it. It's no longer, uh, I wonder if technology will be able to solve this problem. Well, it will. That turns the question right back to you, if you're an individual, but particularly a corporation, to say, well, what do you want to use it for? What do you really want to use it for? Because you've now got this awesome power, big data, AI, machine learning. What do you want to use it for? As you know, she's a very powerful advocate for the sustainable development goals. And so she's seeing this as a, a very exciting conversation starting to develop within the corporate leadership world globally is it's not enough to just hand all this to the IT geeks. We've got to bring back that conversation into the executive discussion around purpose. Who are we? What do we want to do? Because then technology for sure will be able to help us. But the prior question is why and for what? That is amazing. And, and SAP, you know, huge company. Um, and to have somebody like Anne out in the front trying to gain traction and, and awareness uh, about it, what I think is a growing movement in the corporate world, which is purpose-driven work and impact-driven work and the role of corporations around the world in achieving the sustainable development goals is critical. And again, I also, it, heartening to hear that example, and, and it is something that resonates with me that I'm also seeing it because I'm hearing more and more companies and organizations wanting to understand how to be more inclusive in their work, how to tackle some global challenges. And it reminds me too, I don't know if you remember, but a number of years ago, there was a big scuttlebutt because it's one of the earliest and biggest examples of big tech, Google, right? It's got information and data on people's interests, behavior searches, activity, you name it, they've got it. And there's a huge uproar internally at Google because the leadership started taking that information and working with national governments on weapon and war game theory. And the, the staff were, are you kidding me? We, we've got more information at our fingertips than humankind has ever had in our history. And the, the way we want to use that is for warfare. And it just made this, it was a huge impact in Silicon Valley. Like, what are we doing with all of this information and data and to what end? And there's some good choices and bad choices we can make. But I do think this is on the trend in general in the right direction, but also needs to be counterbalanced by conversations we picked up in our midterm series last week when we were talking about a police state, about using information to be precognitive about people's behaviors and choices and or to spy on them. So this is still a very real live struggle and debate that's getting pulled in both directions right now by COVID. So it's going to be fascinating to see where the leadership is exhibited and in what direction. Oh, Seth, you keep opening up these large issues, these large subjects for discussion. I've got uh, lots of thoughts on those. And I have no doubt that in my conversations with our participants in the next week and weeks, they will too. So can we talk about this some more? Please, looking forward to it. Thanks again for a quick roundup on, on what's been going on with all of our participants for the last couple of weeks and look forward to talking to you again next week, Peter. Me too. Bye. Bye for now. This conversation definitely went a lot longer than we planned, but I hope you found it interesting and helpful. If this is your first time listening to us and you're wondering where to go next, 
we recently wrapped up a midterm summary of emerging insights from our project thus far. You can also listen to our previous episodes with weekly insights. We've got more than a handful of these now as well. You can find links to subscribe to our podcast and check out our project page in the episode notes. This is Seth Schultz. Thank you once again for listening. See you next week.